This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but with a podcast. Ten podcasts, actually. Hello now, playing listeners. It's your friend Stuart here, broadcasting to you from a world ravaged by global pandemic, struggling with economic inflation and extreme political divide, and fearful of ever-growing encroachment on basic human rights and freedoms. Happy holidays, right? <laughs> Merry effin' Christmas. Well, my gift to you this bleak holiday season is the reassurance that mankind has always believed that society is on the verge of collapse. And dystopias have been the subject of some of our greatest science fiction books and movies. We want to take you through that. Now, Playing is going to go through 100 years of dystopias, decade by decade, to see where all these great minds have found the threats to our lives and maybe find deliverance to a better end as well. It's all part of our Gold Level series that starts with the release of Metropolis, considered by many film critics to be the first movie masterpiece of the science fiction genre. Now, what could a 1927 black and white silent German film about dancing robots possibly have to say about today's struggles? Maybe more than you think. Take a listen to a clip from the show and I'll talk to you afterwards. It's trippy, it's beautiful, and inspired because Fritz Lang had taken a trip. He had had several hits in Germany. He had made movies of the Ring Cycle operas. He had made sort of a horror movie about Dr. Mabusa, that's a mentalist that controls you and makes you do terrible things, has been read as a metaphor for Hitler. Anyway, these films had gotten some traction. He was being courted by Hollywood. He took a trip to America, saw New York for the first time. And that's when this movie became the inspiration. And keep in mind, this is a New York that still didn't have the Empire State Building, still didn't have some of its most iconic structures. But New York and America was leading the idea that the future was about giant silver phalluses building up and the idea that the rich would live on top and the poor would struggle on the bottom. Literalize a class struggle in a structure of glass and steel. You mean, Stuart, you don't have biplanes flying outside your window right now? I wish. I'm still waiting for my flying car. <laughs> I'll say, though, the visuals of this hold up, and my modern mind, I couldn't figure out how a lot of this was done back then. If you didn't have the technologies of today, a little of it I was able to figure out, but a lot of these visuals, I'm stunned that they were able to do this back in the 1920s. My understanding is that Lang did study architecture. I think you could tell with these map paintings, which are great. I'm sure they're all destroyed. I'd love one. But I agree, Arnie. Like, it's definitely dated. It's 1927 when this is coming out. But it's beautiful. Even in black and white, these paintings are beautiful. I know they used models because you see, like, cars and planes moving around. I think they even animated some stuff because you see, like, people running along these walkways at times. But... Again, this is why you go back and watch these old things, because the visuals are everything. There is no sound besides the score, whoever's playing the organ while you're watching it. Yeah, it's, that's important to realize. There was a score written specific to this yes. that everyone would have heard. So there was a musical accompaniment. You would not watch it silently. Yeah, and that's how most of the silent, there's always something going on. But yeah, I think this is visually fantastic. You get it right away with all these great, weird science fiction architecture buildings they got going on. A lot of it was mirrors, just FYI. He, in his trip to L.A., he studied up on special effects techniques. 
you know, it was Hollywood that taught him how to do this. They were really competing. I mean, you have to realize that Germany needed to create a film industry. They were doing pretty well. This movie, they got so much money because this was going to be the movie to compete with the D.W. Griffith kind of epics and the religious pictures that were big at that time. So there was an early Ten Commandments and such. That those movies did well. And so this was seen as competition. The Germans have to prove that, I don't know, they didn't lose World War I, I don't know. But <laughs> it was, in many ways, hubris that led them to spend two years and a whole lot of money. I don't know how it all translates, but it was the most expensive movie of its era when this thing was done. When we start, though, we start with perhaps the most nowadays stereotypical vision of dystopia imaginable, the workers trudging, the shift change, the people moving out double time and moving in single time. I loved it. They all were in lockstep, like either a military or a dance crew. Goose step, even. Or like robots themselves. If you're watching Andor, like they're still using these kind of visuals. Mm -hmm. And I do love it. Again, I don't know if you have to hold on every scene as long as they do, because that's what they did back then. But visually, because that's 90% of this film, it's great to look at. Like, I don't know if it's choreography, but the synchronization of the workers. There's so much they tell you with their body language, the way they're moving in and out. I could see why you got to hold on this, because you got to interpret it yourself. Yeah, it feels like dance, honestly. It feels like a dance performance. It feels like this thing could be a musical. Like, Marauder wasn't crazy to say, let's make this a rock opera. No, except he should have got Goblin or Tangerine Dream to do the score <laughs> for it. Like, oh, I just don't like that 84 soundtrack. But yeah, when they're all working on this big machine, yeah, they're all swaying back and forth like they are clockwork, like they are machines too. And yes, they live underground. They have to live at the bottom of this thing. At the top, we'll see the privileged 1%. We'll see what's supposed to be the Jesus figure, but boy, oof, he doesn't suffer enough in my estimations. I want to be the one drilling the nails into his hands. This Frieder is just bleh. How so? I mean, he's a pretty boy. He definitely is amusing in his 1920s German short pants. I do feel like up until even recently, like this was your protagonist, the very privileged white guy that's going to become a savior personage. Like we don't get a lot of his backstory. Like he runs around with all the other sons of the city. You got this garden that looks like it's something out of a Dr. Seuss book, which again, that's a compliment. It looks great. The paintings <laughs> here. But yeah, the fact that he's going to turn so fast as soon as Maria shows up with a bunch of kids saying, hey, these are your brothers. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah. Like, is he just horny for Maria, or does he actually care about the kids? That's what I took it as, is he really was stricken by Maria's beauty, which, again, it's 1920s fashion. She looks exactly the same as all those women around Frieder to me, frumpy and not attractive. Well, no, I mean, the women around are wearing hoop skirts and flirting and, you know, are painted ladies. They very much courtesans. These are all kind words for women that solicit power through sex. And here, yes, here is a woman who is a mother. What is striking about her, and again, what could be debatable about whether it's lust or love that he feels for her, is that she has this halo around her. Almost literally, there's like this cinematic glow that tells you she is a saint, and that she is the Virgin Mary, and that, yes, she opens his consciousness to the idea that there are those that are less privileged than himself. He lives a foolish life. Again, I think you would just have contempt for them because they look so stupid. 
And I myself would never want to be at a party where people are behaving this way. Give me on the next elevator straight down. <laughs> I'd rather be in the coal mines pulling levers than being with these people. But yeah, I mean, you get the point. Is that he is stricken, whether by lust or by religious epiphany, that there is something bigger than he conceived. Not unlike what Buddha experienced. It's a common trope in many religious fables about dawning consciousness. Yeah, you start horny and then you get on with the cause and become a true <laughs> believer. You realize that privilege is not for everyone and then you start to think about disadvantage. That's obviously what many saviors represent. They're the superheroes that come and save you from deplorable conditions. So, I don't know. It's not really his story. It really is going to be, I think, Maria and maybe some of the other players that have a more interesting arc in this. Here in the opening scenes, I do think he has his arc, and it's through his point of view that we get introduced to everything. We'd seen the machine world, but didn't know what to think of it until he goes down to the machine world, and it makes me wonder, has he never been there before? No, I don't think he has. Again, he's a privileged dude. He's not going to ask how the lights are kept on. Mm-hmm. Just as we probably haven't been to the meatpacking plants where we get our steaks, yeah, we're, there's something that goes on behind the curtain that allows us to live in privilege and frivolity. And then when we're aware of that, we have to make choices. Suddenly, we have to think about our role in that. And for this character, what it is is the performance. I just think that he's the worst actor in all this. I kind of enjoy the old-fashioned performers otherwise. His dad's actually pretty good. He's a little bit more subtle. Yeah. He goes running to dad and is like, have you heard this? You know, he's thinking... Yeah, I watched this explosion. It made me think about the god of war, Moloch. Yeah, Moloch, again, Old Testament, read it. The Hebrews always clashing with the Canaanites. This is one of the Canaanite gods that they would sacrifice people to. And we see that from Frieder's point of view, this German expressionism. So you're going to get a lot of subjective views. But he sees this great machine as this god with the slaves just being fed to it, being sacrificed. Right. They would sacrifice their children to it. Okay, Moloch. I had no idea what the big lion creature was, but I mean, I took it as the machine is a beast that is eating people, and mm -hmm. that metaphor is pretty clear. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It was a pre-Christian god, and yeah, Moses wasn't happy to know that this is what he was fighting for, he was fighting with when he was trying to lead the people to the new way. It gets to the idea of something ancient and threatening about all of this modernity, and that's a clash throughout the movie, is we're going to see the future in parallel to like fairy tale lands and magicians and arcane sort of, yeah, pentagrams and old belief mixed with new. When we see the scientist, he's not just a scientist, he's also a conjurer, a magician. So I think both the new and the old are at play here. And in this case, these new machines resemble the old gods that are brutal and cruel to the common man. When you get to his father, Joe, however, I think I saw another Star Wars influence that has never been really mentioned. I think I know where you're going, because I definitely thought of Star Wars with him. This guy looks just like Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin. Yes, I was thinking that the whole time. I'm like, they had to be looking at this guy, his hairstyle. The look on his face. Yeah, it had to have been an intentional inspiration as much as C-3PO for that movie, for their bad guy. I mean, the Death Star is kind of 
a metropolis in and of itself. City planet, if not a giant city. And you're right, he is a much better actor than Frieder is. I enjoy this character a lot more. He plays it close to the vest. So there's your taste of Metropolis. As you can see, not depressing at all. Arnie, Jacob, and I are actually having a whole lot of fun breaking down dystopias as we move through the decades. This can be your experience, too, for the next 10 weeks when you donate to become a gold-level, now-playing supporter this winter. And just to give you a preview, after we move on from Metropolis, we get to the 1930s, the brave new world of Aldous Huxley that was recently dramatized in the Peacock TV miniseries we're covering, then on to totalitarian 1940s, George Orwell's 1984 novel dramatized in a 1984 movie. We go on to Fahrenheit 451, Soylent Green, the George Lucas breakthrough movie THX 1138, Terry Gilliam's Goofy Brazil, Kevin Costner is going to battle Dennis Hopper in a water world in the 1990s, and then Clive Owen is going to try to protect the last natural born birth in Children of Men, and we finally wrap it up with Chris Evans taking a train ride through the Second Ice Age in Snowpiercer. Ten really fascinating visions of the future. That can be yours when you come to our redesigned website. Just click on the banner that advertises 100 Years of Dystopia, or you can click on that Metropolis poster with the cool robot. It's going to take you to a page and walk you through the details. We are asking for a $30 donation for a total of 16 podcasts. Because you're not only going to receive those 10 dystopia podcasts, but you get our Silver Level series, which are six Adams Family podcasts. We already released those this past fall. And by doing so, you become a member of the Now Playing family, and you really help this podcast continue to survive in a world dominated by corporately owned, you know, podcasts. We're, we're just the little guy. We're able to remain independent and give you unfiltered opinions that I hope really connect with you in a human level. It's your financial support that allows us to keep the lights on, keep those fires burning, keep the resistance alive. So I thank you in advance for your contribution to Now Playing. This is Stuart signing off. I'll talk to you soon. opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2022, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved.